Welcome to the McDonald Laurier Institute's podcast, Pod Bless Canada. My name is Shuvaloy Majumdar, Monk Senior Fellow for Foreign Policy at the McDonald Laurier Institute. And today I'm ecstatic to be joined by the former director of CSIS, a security, intelligence, and defense expert, senior civil servant for 25 years, the great Ward Alcock. Ward, welcome and thank you for being here with us. Thank you very much for that. I wanted to talk to you about so many things. There's a gambit of issues that Canada is being impacted by on the national security front. But first, maybe I could ask you to provide a bit of vignette. You've been retired for two years now. I'm curious, what are some of the more memorable experiences that you had in your tenure as one of our country's national security vanguards that now, upon reflection, stay with you as 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 a memory that is worth reflecting on? Oh, I, I think probably one of the, the more exciting things was, in, fr- in, in fact, the, the ability to be with the Security Intelligence Service in its relatively early days when I joined the service. service was only 10 years old, so in a, in a sense, uh, still very, very young uh, and still building capabilities. So, so to work there for another 10 years and see uh, much of that take fruit and, and develop uh, was an amazing experience. What year was that? Uh, I joined in 1994 and I left in uh, 2004. So you saw everything through the end of the Cold War to 9-11? That's in fact accurate. When I first joined, we were looking at the end of the Cold War. And and some people, particularly outside the service, were wondering whether there was any more need for uh, intelligence services now that the Soviet Union was gone. The famous idea of the end of history. Yes, exactly. The end of history. That didn't last very long, no. <laughs> uh, but through the beginnings of, of terrorism uh, as a serious threat, a threat to Canada, not that we had not already had incidents of terrorism in the sense that particularly the, uh, the, the assassination of the Turkish diplomat and, and the attack on Air India and so on. So we were not without experience of terrorism uh, even prior to, uh, to 1994, but after 1994 and into the uh, late 90s and into 2000, obviously things changed dramatically. It's incredible because, <clears throat> look, I'm a serious national security nerd. So for me, it's it's a great thrill to to be with you today. But also uh, listeners will recall that I spent some time in the previous government as a policy director of the foreign minister. The question that I've always been dying to ask somebody of your tenure is this. At the end of the Cold War, the world was shaped by a contest of two hegemons competing for hegemony. In, and power was measured through the deployment of nuclear material and the capacity to deliver it. Mutually assured destruction. Exactly. After 9-11, it seems that the threat is no longer linear or symmetric. It's not state-based, it's non-state-based. And the threat is everything from cyber to biological to lone wolf terrorists on the streets. How has the intelligence community been able to evolve to adapt to the threat of these new times? Do you have faith that we're going to be able to keep up? Oh, the challenges in keeping up are made. Most of those challenges don't grow out of, uh, the, don't grow instantaneously. Uh, they develop over time. So you saw them cases, grow. Pardon? You saw them grow. Well, you begin. You can begin to see them grow. I mean, once you've once you've watched the end of the, the fall of the wall and the end of the Soviet Union, you're moving into something else. You you watch the evolution of terrorism all, through, all the way through the, the 90s and into 2000. Rarely does something happen overnight. Uh, you may, uh, for example, uh, the arrest of, of Ahmad Rassam uh, attempting to, to head south to bomb uh, Los Angeles airport in, right. in 2000. Right. 
was a, a signal moment, but it was not entirely a surprise in the context of many of the other things that were happening. Right. Uh, there were others of Ahmed or Sam's uh, ilk. The specific incident was was something that caught us by surprise. Right. Um, but but did we expect something like that? Were we aware of people like that? Yeah, it was a, it was an evolution. We saw the evolution. That's interesting. And so you know, in the context of 9-11, you have a huge refrain from contemporary historians who say, well, listen, the, the, the modern terrorism was invented by the period of uh, the Cold War by pre-positioning allies of convenience that foreign intelligence agencies would do around the world. You'd find the thug that you like to try and accomplish power in the short term and inadvertently create a monster. How much of that is actually true versus fiction in the context of where the origins of contemporary terrorist groups and organizations come from, based on your experience? Uh, it's, not, it's not the only source. Many of the early individuals that were a particular concern to us came out of, not out of Afghanistan, came out of North Africa right. uh, with a different kind of experience. But right. uh, very quickly, many of those people did filter into places like Afghanistan, did, which was in some respects the result of the individuals, the people who were recruited essentially to help fight the, the war in Afghanistan against the Soviets. Right. Uh, so there's, there's, a bit of, there's, there's truth to it, but it's a broader story. That's a I fair guess point. is the better answer. No, it's a fair point because it's, I, I think it's a, it's a lot more complex than, than can be distilled in some cases like that, mm -hmm. right? In the context of today's national security environment for Canada, we just concluded a wonderful panel that you participated on with Duanji Chen and Charles Burton on uh, state-owned investments in Canada and particularly the threat that the Chinese deal poses through ACON. Uh, could you provide our listeners a bit of a, a broad reflection on what you think this deal represents and why it's important that Canadians should pay attention to this, why this is something that shouldn't be just cast under the rug, but deserving of national attention and genuine national debate? It's not the only acquisition by a Chinese company of a Canadian company. There have been others. Some may pose relatively little concern. I mean, you think of the acquisition by Anbang of of a company in British Columbia running retirement homes, right. uh, that probably doesn't pose a huge number of national security threats. Uh, if one thinks of one of the other proposed acquisitions, which actually went through, uh, where it was alleged there was significant sensitive military technology uh, in the company, mm -hmm. Once, one, sometimes we're not always sure that the that, that technology is as sensitive as it is billed. Uh, but in the end, the government approved it. But uh, that kind of acquisition would obviously raise much more serious concerns if, if you were seeing a Chinese company, Chinese, Chinese private corporation or state-owned company acquiring sensitive technology. Right. Uh, Acon, which is the current example, right. uh, is, is a, a major Canadian construction company. It's probably never going to get to build, if, it, if it's taken over by a Chinese company, it's probably never going to get to build any sensitive military or intelligence sites simply because it will never get the clearances, its people will never get the clearances right. to work on such a building. Right. Uh, but it arguably does pose a broader um, national security threat in the context of the fact that it, it does bid on, build, uh, operate, uh, some major infrastructure projects, critical, critical some of which could be described yes. as critical infrastructure projects, whether you're talking about uh, transmission lines, transmission projects, uh, transmission grids, power right. grids, 
um, dams, um, bridges, bridges, and so on and so forth, um, th that does begin to raise questions about national security and whether you do want a Chinese state-owned company actually building those those bits and pieces of infrastructure this, in the future. This concern you have, it's not about the quality of Chinese or Canadian construction through ACON. It's it's something deeper, right? The, no, it has nothing to do with the, I mean, one assumes they will continue to be a, a professionally run engineering company. Engineering company, Correct. one assumes. One assumes. Um, but there are rules around that and regulations that apply to that kind of thing. So, right. so one assumes that that will happen. But the question is, why is what, what is the, if, if Akon is acquired by a Chinese state-owned company, uh, a Chinese state-owned company and all of its entities are operating only for the benefit of China. They're not operating right. for Canada's benefit right. or in Canada's interest particularly. Right. Is there, and, and to us it would be largely opaque, what, is the, what, what are the purposes that a corporation is, is working for? Right. Uh, and what damage could it do to Canadian national security? It, it, is, is that a thing forward. with the Chinese, with the People's Republic of China? Is that a thing? Like, do we need to be concerned that their state-owned commercial investment into a Canadian commercial enterprise can somehow be manipulated by the Chinese government towards some sort of leverage over the government of Canada? Like, is there a proven record of this that we can look to and how China uses its state-owned instruments to exert power in other jurisdictions? Oh, I think you can. I think it's not hard to see examples of of China exerting power. Okay. Um, take take a recent example, for instance, in South Korea, right. uh, when the Chinese got but got upset with the South Koreans, they effectively eviscerated a South Korean corporation, uh, prevented from operating in China, and and essentially brought it to its knees. That's not very capitalist, is it? No, it's it's <laughs> it's, it's pretty focused. Right. Um, now, obviously, we're talking, perhaps talking about something different than, than that. But the reality is, do we as a country want sensitive installations to be controlled, managed by a country that is neither democratic nor governed by the rule of law, maintains formal and informal barriers to access to its market, right. and, and is probably one of the countries that uh, is most active in 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 the intelligence world. Right. Uh, do we in fact want the, the the representatives of that country, and that's what that's what state-owned enterprises are. They are solely the representative of China. They they function for for the government of China. Right. Do we want them running our sensitive infrastructure? This is a great question to ask somebody who has twenty five years of experience in this space, because you know in this period. There was a great debate in the 90s and well into the 2000s about China as a rising economic partner of the West. Uh, if we could only engage and help them lift them, their people out of abject poverty, uh, an accomplishment which they have achieved in some regard, then perhaps that China as a country, as a state, would be more partners of ours in this new international order that we are building in the post-World War, post-Cold War period. You've, you've been at this for 25 years. You've read stuff that I can't ask you about. But I'm curious, in your judgment, is China a partner or is China an enemy? I'm, I wouldn't necessarily define China as an enemy at this juncture. Uh, I think it is possible that we could find ourselves with an enemy. I think it's in our interests not to go down that road of it if we can't do it at all. Try but having said that, avoid making China an enemy. Avoid making China an enemy. Having said that, 
Uh, it's also clear that the bargain we thought we were moving towards with China is really no longer on the table. Mm-hmm. Xi Jinping is, is, is now dictator for life. Why is that? Hard to say because it's, it's, something, it's something the Chinese have decided. Right. Uh, and so it's not within our control. But it would appear that that the illusions that we may have cherished about China moving progressively, inevitably to some sort of reform that would make China look something more like a Western state than 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 a than a, than a state run by the Communist Party of China right. is it was largely illusory. Right. So what do we need to do to try and understand that when we look at a commercial initiative from China that it it, does, it isn't commercial in the capitalist market-based democratic construct that we understand. No. I think there's a, there's a profound disconnect in how we look at China because of the rhetoric of the last 20 years in describing the Chinese experience. How do we deal with that? Uh, with difficulty. I mean, the reality is it's unlikely that, that any country can be successful dealing with China entirely on its own. Right. Perhaps the United States, but, but uh, most of the rest of us are are going to find the Chinese econ- the, the power of the Chinese economy and power of China itself hard to resist. Mm-hmm. So what that really means ultimately is I think um, we need to work with others, right. uh, but we also I think need to start to be honest and clear with ourselves about what our views of China are, correct, uh, yes. and and actually have some discussions about what is and what is not acceptable to see it as it is rather than what we wish it to be. Yes, right. Yes. Do you think that the current challenge that Washington and the Trump administration is posing to Beijing, to President Xi, on trade wars, on, 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 on the capital that Chinese hold in the American Treasury, on microchips, is this a good thing right now or is this a bad thing right now? Is this something that needs to be brought to head or could there be a more sophisticated way to engage this truth about China as it is? I think the the worrying part about about what the American American administration is doing uh, is not so much that that they are challenging um, some of the positions of China because probably we should have challenged some of them over the years and and may have to more in the future. Yes. The question I think really is whether the American approach is actually thought through or it simply responds to the whims of one man who's understanding of, of the broader, deeper issues may not actually be very great. We'll see. That remains to be seen. Yes, <laughs> yes it does. Now, in the context of the national security threat environment for Canada, we, we spent a lot of time talking about China. Is that outsized or are we right to be so focused on China as a national security threat for Canadians and for Canada? Are there other threats that we should pay more attention to or is it getting the right amount of attention it deserves in our national debate? There are a range of national security threats and, and yeah. terrorism is a national security threat. Exactly. So not one that you want to lose sight of, particularly in, in this day and age. In terms of state actors, mm-hmm. I mean, the reality is China would come awfully close to the top of the list as, as the potential for national security threats, but the Russians are still out there. Um, they still operate um, around the world uh, about as aggressively as they did when it was the Soviet Union um, and are making efforts to sharpen their power, uh, their ability to act internationally. Let's talk about this for a bit. Um, so because not without cha- they're, they're not without challenges. No, no, let's, let's talk about this for a bit because you came into this at the end of the Cold mm-hmm. War where you saw uh, perhaps Russia kind of at its apex in its capacity to deploy its power around the world. Today, Russia is an economy that's $2 trillion and shrinking, not growing. 
In so many ways, it, it is accused of being China's gas station, a client state to China. Um, it has this outsized role in places like Syria and Ukraine uh, and in the cyber realm uh, in information manipulation uh, that, that is really quite state of the art when you compare it to the other kind of tools that different governments use from around the world. What is your observation about Russia today and how it sits in terms of its relationship with China and what it means for Canada? I ask this question because in Canada, public policy leaders are debating engagement with Russia, free trade with China, diplomatic relations with Iran. And then you have a different perspective, a very different perspective. Uh, which of these two would you say uh, is the right path? Is it a blend of the two? How do you approach these belligerent powers, particularly when you're looking at the Russian context in places like Ukraine and elsewhere? Uh, I, th I think that the problem with the Russians is that while one would hope to have the, the capacity for diplomatic engagement, that what was it Winston Churchill said, jaw jaw is better than war war. Fair uh, point, um, yes, um, okay. Talking is, talk, talking is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not so much the talking, it's, it's what you do about the talking. Russia is a challenge. Uh, its ambitions exceed its its real capacity in all likelihood, but Putin is what he is. He's a he's a former intelligence officer. Mm -hmm. uh, he had, they calculate very carefully and 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 can it be expected to be very careful? I mean, they they will use every tool in the toolkit to advance the interests of Russia. Uh, are they interested in going to war with the West? I doubt it. Right. Uh, but the reality is we can't expect them unless we unless we are clear in our signals to them about what we will accept. We can't expect them to simply toe the line. Right. Canada's relationship with Russia at the moment is not particularly good and not likely to get better anytime soon, right. I suspect. Right. So rapprochement with, with Russia at the moment is probably unlikely in, in Canada's case. Uh, Iran, not to talk to Iran is not necessarily a success. Um, the fact that 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 the re regime is as brutal as it is, and that it has affected, in some cases, Canadians, um, unfortunately, doesn't mean that we should not talk to them. Right. It, but we do need to be very careful about how we talk to them and where we're going with it. Right. Um, China is a bigger challenge. Uh -huh. So, in that context of Russia, Iran, and China, in your mind, China is the bigger challenge. China is a much bigger challenge. Yes. And, do you and China has much more, China has ultimately much more capacity to affect our economy or the, the success of our economy than either Russia or, or Iran do. I, what I think is fascinating about this conversation between Russia and China is the experience of communism in both countries. In one country, communism collapsed and was replaced by a kleptocracy, an oligarchical kind of network. Well, you can, but you can also argue that Russia was always a criminal conspiracy. Interesting. I mean, it, in some sense, it, it didn't suddenly become criminal. Right. There were, it, it was already, in some respects, the, 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 the criminality was the grease that made the system run. Would you say that was true for Joseph Stalin's Russia? Uh, hard, I wouldn't want to pick a date at which it became more <laughs> criminal than, than legitimate administrative organization, but, but the, the idea of the fixer and, and the, uh, the need to have sort of the criminal grease in the, or the grease in the system yeah. is an old Russian idea. And do you see that as a contemporary Chinese idea? 
Criminality in the Chinese system is there. There are lots of there are lots of indications that criminality within the Chinese system is also there. But I don't think you could say this. I don't know that you could come to the same conclusion about China. Interesting. Uh, at this juncture, um, although the current campaign, depending on how you see it, is it really Xi Jinping getting rid of of, of challengers, or is it really? Um, um, wrecking havoc on, on, on the criminal elements. Not entirely clear always what is actually happening, right? but I'm not sure that I would describe China at this point in quite the sense one would describe Russia as, as in some sense, approaching a criminal state. Good point. So Canada has a huge transatlantic history, <clears throat> world wars until the Cold War. Uh, increasingly, global growth is dr being driven out of the Indo-Pacific region. That will be the center of gravity for global growth for the generation to come. And so as we conceive of Canada's Pacific arm, our Pacific flank, in your mind, what are some of the great opportunities that we can have in partners to confront China's rise or to try and help enable a more responsible rise of China? Where do you see in terms of new opportunities for Canadian intelligence Canadian security professionals to build the bridges and invest in the kind of infrastructure that's necessary for Canada to have a very big stake in this dynamic and growing region. I wouldn't necessarily uh, argue that, that that there are huge national security links. Mm -hmm. I mean, we do have uh, national security links into a large part of that part of the world. Mm -hmm. um, they can always be better, but it depends on how many resources you've got and where the priorities are at any particular time. Right. I think the the one the part that has always troubled me a little bit is that I'm not sure we as a country have made the most of our connections to that part of the world, and it does have its challenges. It's not an easy area to to work in. Billions of people, <laughs> but it does have billions of people and yeah. and huge markets. Yes, I remember when when we first started working on issues around human smuggling. Correct. Um, when I when I would go out to uh, go out to Southeast Asia, I was the first person at a deputy minister level or above who'd been in that part of the world for four or five years. That's incredible. Uh, so, so it always puzzled me that we have not as a country paid more attention to, to Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about it, mm -hmm. uh, but we have not done as much as I think we need to do. Is this the moment to develop, to develop those, those connections? Yeah. And, and in many cases, the connections oddly enough can be quite good because you're surprised how many people you run into. Who, who have some history of Canada or some experience of Canada or studied here or whatever, and so are actually quite well disposed yes. to Canada, uh, but we don't always make the connections beyond that to take it to another level. Is this the moment for Canada to take its engagement in the Indo-Pacific to the next level? That's that's a question for, for uh, <laughs> the government itself. It depends on what its priorities are. Right. Uh, but certainly, it is a it is it is in my view a somewhat neglected area of, uh, and, and that is passing strange given its size and and the speed of its development and so on. And our capacity as a Pacific nation. <laughs> yes, yes, we talk more about it than we actually do about it. This is true. Which is too bad. It is too bad. I think it's time to change. It's one of the things that we hope to embark upon here at the McDonald Laurier Institute uh, to address uh, for for for, Kim, for Canadians. Um, Ward, let me ask you one final question. The notion of sovereignty of state uh, has been in question for some time. Some people say that 
you know, we're in a postmodern world that state infrastructure, state interests are less important and multilateral interests are more superseded. Others say that, no, we're seeing around the world a restoration of the nation state and its core interests. What do you see happening in this world today? Uh, because it is changing so much. It appears to be growing more multipolar rather than as unipolar as it has been. What do you see as the security architecture, the, the real threat vectors for Canada and for Canadians to be acutely aware of? Is it the me mechanized apparatus of the Chinese state through its economic instruments, waging warfare by looking at commercial assets from a political lens? Is it the question of terrorism? Like These are all very different types of threats than what we have been accustomed to over the last hundred some odd years of war and peace. But what do you think is pertinent in this changing world for uh, Canadian sovereignty and to be able to establish and enhance Canadian sovereignty. I think the big challenge, frankly, is is the reality that for Canada, the multilateral world which we existed in before mm -hmm. um, was a relatively easy world for us uh, and one in which we could make a fair amount of progress relatively easily. Mm -hmm. A world that becomes much more divided yes. um, is is not one uh, that is necessarily entirely friendly to us. Uh, and is not one that plays to our strengths. Right. Um, so to me, that's the major challenge going forward. All of the other things you, we will have to deal with, whether it's terrorism or the challenges of China or whatever, but dealing with it in the context of a multipolar world or, or more than just bipolar right. uh, is, is, is going to be, I think, a bigger challenge for Canada mm -hmm. and may circumscribe our freedom uh, of movement in a way that it has not really been circumscribed in, in, in the last 20, 30, 40 years. That's a big, bold thing to say. And I think it underpins exactly uh, the current debate Canada is having about the ACON deal and China's interest in it. Ward, thank you so very much for joining us at the McDonald-Laurier Institute today. We look forward to seeing much, much more of you. Uh, you look well in retirement and uh, thank you. it's always fun to watch you on TV. So stay in touch. And to our listeners, please stay tuned. Uh, much more fun and interesting podcasts here at Pod Bless Canada. I'm Shuv Majumdar signing out. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>